0: namo namo So today is our first full day of retreat, and um, for me it's a very um, lovely thing to have you all here and to be able to spend the day in the Garden of the Gods. Um, You know, for me this has been a really significant part of my practice for the last six years is being able to spend time in this place and and just um, normalize, you know, let the Complexity of the world and the the widgets and the gadgets and the emails and the everything's kind of just settle and stop and just let everything settle into something that's the garden for me is normal you know a, a phenomenal level of normalcy and for um, for people who are new to the garden I imagine there's a kind of like oh my goodness kind of the beauty of it is quite um almost breath it's breathtaking it's almost hard to take it all in and so there's a you know there's a shift to a new place and we're getting used to routines and we're here in this Vihara which is quite cozy quite tiny and yet and so learning to find our way with rhythms and with routines and getting used to the altitude for for you've come from far away and Feeling our way into the garden. So I was I was reflecting today on you know some of the different ways in which we can experience this human condition. And um, I uh, I have been I I've I've known that I'm going to need to spend a little bit of time on the internet just checking up on things. And one of the things that I was noticing was an article um, that was just come out that Exxon knew in the early 70's that the impact of fossil fuel was going to increase the uh, CO2 concentration in the atmosphere which was likely going to raise the temperature and their response to this knowledge which they funded the research to establish was to generate massive um, campaigns to deny climate change and to scramble information. So you have human beings who have, um, some human beings, have such a a motivation of greed that even in the face of information that can be potentially uh, life-threatening to all life as we know it, and they're aware of that, they just move ahead with their impulse to get what they want. And when you look at the spectrum of various different kinds of human beings that exist in the world, there are people who are like that, you know. It's, uh, they exist. You know, even when they have all the information, they move in the direction of their own self-interest, no matter what the costs are. And so, the, this human realm has within it a large variety of ways in which that we can manifest and what we can do with our basic impulse to get our needs met or to be um, feel satisfied or nurtured or to have power or privilege or uh, wealth status. And some people like these people who are involved in that have a particular way of responding to it. And other people also, they have um, tendencies towards ill will or towards anger or towards aversion. And they rejoice when they act on them. It makes them happy when they hurt other people. They can kind of like boast about how horrendous the horrendous acts that they have committed. And there are people who are like that. And and there are also people who are unbelievably confused. I was reading last week, before the retreat started, I was reading this book. It's called The Invisible um, Gorilla. And I love it because it's just got all kinds of information in it about the way perception works and the illusion of perceptions. And so some people, you know, they have the illusion that because they're confident that that's the only thing that they need to have, uh, that they don't need to take care of anything else. And so one person decided that um, he was going to rob a bank. And in, when we were children, we used to make this thing with lemon juice, where you put lemon juice on a certain kind of ink and it makes it invisible, Right. So this this man decided that if he put lemon juice on his face, then he would be invisible to the video cameras. (laughs) And robbed a bank and within an hour was apprehended by the police and he was completely like dumbfounded how this could possibly be because he had the juice on his face, you know. And so, you know, there's ways in which ignorance (coughs) operates, which is, on one hand, humorous, and on another hand, scary. (laughs) 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 And this is the human realm, you know? It can be that nutty, where people really believe... He really believed it. If he put lemon juice on his face, the video cameras were going to pick him up. He would be invisible, you know? And so we have this enormous spectrum, and we, we are born with whatever kinds of, of, of circumstances that we have, with the parents that we have, with the level of resources that we have, with the level of, of challenges that we have. And, and then we have choice points along the way in terms of how we respond to that. and. There are certainly plenty of people who, whatever they are born with, the choices that they make are to move towards more greed and more confusion and more ill will. And so that becomes stronger. And there are others who move in the direction of less greed and less ill will and less confusion. And sometimes you hear of stories of people who come from phenomenally challenging circumstances and yet their heart is set on freedom you know they're clear they don't want to perpetuate the same kind of confusion anymore the same kind of harm that they experienced anymore they don't want to they know there's a fallacy in, in, in more is not enough that that it's an endless rat race that it's a never ending cycle that doesn't ever satisfy and so there are are circumstances of people who are born in phenomenally challenging situations and yet there's something that switches on for them and they are just they're intent on moving towards the light they're intent on moving towards freedom they're intent in moving towards less Harm, less greed, less confusion. And when I meet people like that, or I see examples of people like that, or I see, you know, my friends who are endeavoring to do that, that's something that I just find really deeply ennobling. Uh, Because there's a choice. And it isn't that everybody needs to move in one direction. People actually, many people move in another direction. They move in a direction of confusion rather than in the direction of freedom. So however we got, or whatever we came into this world with, you know, And for most of us, it's been mixed. You know, there's been a a bunch of fortunate conditions and several or many things that are challenging. And yet, to be here in a context where there's a, a commitment to work with what's arising in a way where we are clearly making choices to move towards what is harmless rather than harmful, towards what is contented rather than what is uh, greedy, towards what is clarifying rather than what is confusing. It's an awesome commitment. And when we take this commitment up as a lifelong aspiration, not just as something that we do as a hobby or we, something we do as a you know, an hour-long practice in the evening time once a week, but as a lifelong commitment, it has an effect. And the effect is, is, is that our mind and our body and our nervous system starts to shift more and more and more and more so that what is emerging is a mind-body system that is actually committed towards the principles of harmlessness and goodness and compassion and kindness and generosity. And so in the, in the in the teachings of the preciousness of the human rebirth, in the teachings of relatively speaking how rare it is to come into the conditions of having a human mind and body, you know, when we look at the, the 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 billions of different kinds of insects there are, and the many different kinds of animals that there are, and we look at all of the different expressions of life that there are, even though we have a human population which is exploding, relatively speaking, the number of people there are compared to the number of every other life form that there is, it's... It's, it's, it's relatively rare to come into the experience of having a human mind and body. And then we look at, there are human beings who have minds and bodies, but they don't function completely uh, clearly. And so it's difficult to take something like reflective teachings and put them into practice. They're impaired. Or when we can see that of all of the people who are on this planet, not everyone has access to the Dhamma, you know? It's not that everyone has the access to the Buddha's teachings and to teachings which liberate. And so then we can begin to recognize that here we are in a situation where there, I- there are people who have minds and bodies that are healthy enough, who where we have a situation where the teachings are present, where we have an environment which is conducive, where we have nature, which is incredibly powerful and very supportive, there's a remarkable confluence of conditions that are coming together that are very supportive for the practice of waking up. Now, one of the things that is very interesting about the practice of waking up is is that even though we have all of these fortunate conditions, it's not easy. (laughs) and even though we can be in a place where it's absolutely conducive we still have the movements of the mind that we need to contend with which can move from restless and jealous and bored and confused and uncertain and scared and vulnerable and fearful and you know thinking about what happened before and thinking about what's going to happen next so we can be motivated or moving with minds that are actually filled with a lot of conditioning that is not peaceful that is not calm that's not clear that's not settled you know our minds can be full of agitation or thoughts of ill will about something that happened in the past or imagining something that's going to happen in the future and so to take all of our human experience and move with it in a way where we are letting it shift into positive potential is challenging, to say the least, and possible. And so the teachings that we have, you know, to work with what's arising, to drop into our body, to learn how to relax our body, to begin to feel the nuances of what is actually happening in our bodies as a way of giving some kind of a reflection and spaciousness around what's going on in our mind. The first foundation of mindfulness is a really important part of the practice. And on the first few days of a retreat, it's really important to stay grounded and to feel your body and to do everything you can to let your body relax and energize. And one of the lovely things about being able to practice in the Garden of the Gods is that there isn't any kind of group pressure about what kind of posture you need to be in, in order to support the body Opening and relaxing and energizing, in a way which is actually going to work for you. So, in a meditation retreat, the culture is is that usually in the meditation hall, everyone is sitting up. But you know, for years, you know, for me, one of the things that has been most conducive about going into the Garden of the Gods is lying down and letting my body relax as deeply and completely as possible to just drop into the rocks and to drop any sense of having to be upright or having to hold it together or having to do it or to make it happen. And that when I do that and drop and relax and feel the rocks holding and supporting me or the sand or the earth or the root of the tree holding and supporting me, then what happens is is there's a big shift in my practice from a sense of me having to be the one doing it to just being able to relax into a field of awareness that is holding and supporting all of it. And so then when I shift gears from it being located in me, where I'm the one that's actually originating the meditation and doing it, to shifting into a body that's completely as relaxed as it can possibly be, and the mind is opened into a field of awareness that is just holding what is arising, then the natural kinds of conditions that is coming up, the liking or the not liking or the irritation or the wanting or the displeasure or the whatever it is that's coming up, it comes up in a field of awareness that is held, rather than a subject of me who is having to do something with it. And it's not as if, when there is that experience of relaxing in awareness, that there's no more responsibility. But what happens is is that it shifts the responsibility from being focused on a subject to letting the power of the awareness and the commitment to stay as clear and as close to that as possible. When there is that experience of relaxing into awareness, there are very, very, very few problems, if any. Because what arises is just arising in awareness, there isn't a problem with it. There isn't a me, there isn't an it, there isn't me having to do something to it. I don't have to make it better or make it go away. It's just arising in awareness, it's known in awareness, it exists in awareness and it releases in awareness. The problem of fighting, the, the, the battling with it, the trying, the efforting, the not wanting, the wanting, it is, it is very thin when there's just awareness of what's arising. So in that kind of a context, there's very little problem. And it feels as if the practice is effortless. But in order to get to a place where the practice is effortless, there usually, and for me, has been a lot of effort, of diligence, of repeatedly coming back to the foundations of mindfulness, of reaffirming the intention of, of kindness, of compassion, the affirming the aspiration of non-harm, of remembering that I need to be included in that. And so there's these two things. There's the developing the conditions, polishing the conditions, working with the conditions, and these toeholds of resting in what is not so conditioned. And when there's that resting in that which is awareness, which is pervasive which is loving, which doesn't have boundaries in it. It doesn't obliterate the need to be working with the practice on the level of the conditions. It just highlights that when I'm not in that space of relaxing in awareness and love, which is pervasive, then I need to be very careful with where I place my attention and the choices that I make when there is a very clear sense of a subject who is watching an object. And so in this way of developing the path, of cultivating the conditions, of learning how to be with the body and relax it, of trusting ourselves, of letting the rocks and the land and the trees and the sand hold us, so that we can begin to feel the fullness of our own internal experience without this idea of who and how and what we are supposed to be and look like we can trust that learn to trust that not in a way where we're obliterating a container of safety that the group is practicing in but in a way where we are moving out of a, of a self-imposed kind of construction about what meditation is supposed to look like And yet, even in that, there's an opportunity to practice. Are we walking around the rocks because we're looking for an adventure? Are we walking around the rocks because we're restless, because we don't know what to do? are we walking around the rocks because we are learning how to trust and sense what it is that I need at this moment to be in harmony with what is? So when we are moving from a place of intuition, rather than from desire, notice what that feels like. And when we're moving from a place of desire, rather than intuition, notice what that feels like. Notice what the impact is on the body, on the heart, on the mind, on the ability to relax, on the ability to be with what is, on the level of collectedness, of settledness, of stillness, of tracking, internal responses, and external responses. Now, I don't know if anybody's going to have experiences like You know, sometimes I've had some really funny experiences where it feels like what's going on in my internal world is mirrored around me. Sometimes that can happen in nature. And I remember I was at Arunachala in southern India. And, you know, I have love affairs with land, so you all know that. And I had a love affair with the Arunachala, the mountain. And so, you know, at every moment of the day, I was out on that mountain. And I found, like, different... Places that were quiet, and finding places that are quiet in Arunachala, India, is oh my goodness, nothing ever is quiet in India. So to find quiet places was really kind of a big thing. So I would find these quiet places, and then in India it's hot; it's really hot. So to find a shade place, and a quiet place, and a place that wasn't full of bugs or whatever kind of creepy crawly things, you know, it took some discernment. So I had this place scoped out, and I went. And, you know, I get used to, after being outside for a while, to check the land and to make sure that I'm not sitting on a path of ants or something like that, you know, or I'm not near an anthill. So I get used to making those kinds of preliminary precautions. And so I'd gone, and I'd done all of that, and it was a lovely spot, and I'd been there before, and there was no ant nest, and there was no ant trail, and I was fine. So I sat down, and... And I had come from England, I had been in Chithurst, and some crazy things happen in the community. They're always happening in the community. And something had happened that was really agitating to me with another nun. And so my, my thinking was like this, about this nun, you know, what she said and what happened and what happened and what she said and what I felt and what she said and what happened. You know, so I'm in India, and the nun is in England, and I don't even remember how long ago this thing happened, but it was like this. So my head is like this, and all of a sudden I'm covered in ants. Covered in ants! And I have no idea where they came from. There were no ants when I sat down, and I'm covered in ants. Now, ordinarily, when we're covered in ants, we think the problem is the ants. But I'm on a very powerful sacred mountain. And I know this mountain to nail you every time you are up to mischief and not practicing properly. You know, it will just slap you one way or another. So I thought, it's not the ants, it's my head. It's my head, it's my thinking. Stop thinking about this. The ants disappeared. (laughs) As fast as they came, they left. And so there are sometimes situations when you're in very powerful places where what you're experiencing on the outside is actually a direct reflection of what's going on on the inside. And rather than try and get rid of the ants, if you try and deal with what's going on on the inside then the ants go away. Now, that's one of the ways in which practicing in powerful places can be a phenomenal mirror for what's happening. And we need to have discernment, you know, to know when you get up and you walk away and you try and get the ants off of you, and when you see if... Your way of attending to your own internal experience will help regulate the external environment. It takes discernment. So the Buddha's path is actually quite beautiful because it's a gradual path. You know, the encouragement is to start with affirming um, the commitment towards living with integrity, cultivating generosity, practicing meditation. And so there isn't a a kind of like a a deep... um, there's a gradual sloping in terms of the progression of the training. And yet my own experience is, is, is that there's times where you're at a precipice and it's like, it isn't gradual. It's like, you know, this feeling of having to, it, it's like of, like of, of being, uh, of having to take a leap into the unknown. And that experience of taking a leap into the unknown often feels groundless. And that groundlessness initially is very, very disorganizing and unsettling. Until there's more sense that that groundlessness can in fact be a way to a very, very deep sense of peace and very deep sense of touching into that which is not conditioned. As long as there's a me doing it, there's still a sense of this being in this prison that is very much limited by the natural forces of what happens with impact and what happens with the limitations of our bodies and our hearts and our minds. But when there's a dropping, a letting go, when there is not referencing me as the subject that is the operational unit from which life is organized and happening, and agency is taking place. there's something very big and vast that opens up from that. And the path is both gradual and sudden. It's both. It's not just one or the other, it's both. It takes years of training, of working, of polishing, of cultivating, of keeping integrity, of practicing generosity, of learning to still the mind and settle of bringing attention back, and letting go of this concept of me, of mine, of I. And for me, there's something very powerful that can happen with the rocks. Because the rocks, it's like they hold so that I don't have to hold myself. I drop into the space of awareness that is pervaded, potentized, by the power of the land around. And so to be here and to be practicing in an environment like this is really very conducive. And in this sense of looking at the Various different manifestations of what it is to be human and the kinds of choices that people can make and the manifestations of how people can express themselves as being human. To be willing to say, I'm in. I'm willing to work with everything that's arising. And I feel committed to taking everything that is arising and using it as compost for more compassion, for more kindness, for more generosity, for more clarity, for more harmlessness, for more capacity to live with that quality of being awake, of being free, of being unbound. That ability to take everything that we experience and use it transform it into the path of awakening, where we then begin to taste and to touch and to know those qualities of kindness, of compassion, of joy, of joy that is radiant, of peace, of calm, of equanimity. is really the manifestation of the preciousness of this human birth. So today's MJ's birthday. Her 50th birthday. (laughs) And it's very auspicious to have a birthday on a retreat. And this is a special birthday month. Yesterday was my uh, preceptor's birthday. Today is my sister-in-law's birthday. Tomorrow would have been my father's 88th birthday. The day before was my niece's birthday. Lots of birthdays. And we've got another birthday later on in the week. It's on Friday. And then just what what age? We have two very significant birthdays on this retreat, 50 and 70. Awesome. (laughs) And, you know, for each of us, we have a birthday every day, you know, a new beginning, a new emergence. Is it possible to meet this day with absolute freshness? so just taking note of the effort each one of us has made to get here, to be here, the conditions that have gone into creating this container, this little vahara, this retreat, and just let's make as good use of this time as we can. Let it be an opportunity to meet what is arising. Transform things so that our capacity for kindness and compassion, clarity, equanimity, peace, contentment, joy, inner freedom, grow stronger. So I offer this for reflection this evening.